Welcome back to Core Anesthesia. Whether you are a student prepping for tests and boards or a CRNA here to earn CEUs, we are glad you've joined us. For more about us, make sure to check us out on Instagram at Core Anesthesia and online at coreanesthesia.com. Welcome back to Core Anesthesia. I'm Cole here with Tanner. And today we want to do a discussion that really we've been wanting to do for a while now. I just felt like we wanted to get to the point where we understood this information, this content well enough to do a full episode on it. And so we wanted to talk about respiratory anatomy and physiology more so than the basic upper airway anatomy that we did a previous episode on. We really want to take time to go through the process of shunting, dead space, ventilation versus oxygenation, how oxygen is transferred through the blood, different forms of VQ mismatching we can have, et cetera. And again, hopefully this is going to be beneficial to you. It'll be a little bit more in depth. We're going to try to cram as much of this information as we can into the half hour that we try to keep these talks to. But without further ado, Tanner, you just want to take us into the basic concept of breathing and what drives our bodies to take those breaths each time. So starting out with just the very basics, when you take a breath, the air is going to come in through your mouth or your nose. It's going to go through your pharynx, down to the larynx, down the trachea, and then that's where you come to the crine. At that point, you're going to go through the bronchi, then through the terminal bronchioles. You'll have your respiratory bronchioles, which is the first area that you're going to have some gas exchange, and then the alveolar ducts until it reaches the alveolar sacs. And this is really where we think of the most amount of gas exchange happening or where you typically think of gas exchange happening. So when you have air going in and out of the lungs, this is mainly due to pressure gradients. So this is important when we think about how we're ventilating patients, whether they are breathing on their own or we are uh, breathing for them with the ventilator. This is different depending on negative or positive pressures, but this pressure difference is what is going to drive the movement of air in and out of the lungs. So when you take a breath, your diaphragm is going to contract. This will pull your lungs downward. So that's negative pressure there inside the thoracic cavity. So as the diaphragm is contracting and pulling your lungs downward, the external intercostal muscles contract and will expand the lungs horizontally as well. So you have both the lungs being pulled downwards, and then you also have the lungs being pulled horizontally. So that's going to be with your external intercostal muscles. The increase in space inside the lungs due to that contraction. So that's going to cause that negative pressure. That's going to be less than the atmospheric pressure. And so air is going to rush in going along that pressure gradient from outside from the atmospheric pressure to inside and that negative pressure that's created by the diaphragm pulling down and then your external intercostals pulling the lungs horizontally as well. Opposite is true for exhalation. So when the diaphragm relaxes, this is going to cause a smaller space inside the lungs. All of the air in the lungs is now at a higher pressure because of the smaller space, and it will go along the pressure gradient back outside your body to the lower atmospheric pressure. So when you actively take a bigger breath, this will include the contraction of the scalene muscles and the sternocleidomastoid as well. That's when you take a really large breath. If you just sit there and actually do that, you can feel as you take a big breath, you can feel that engage where you have these the scalene muscles, sternocleidomastoid, 
when you exhale, this will include also your abdominal muscles. Again, if you do that, you're blowing air out. You can feel the abdominal muscles engage and then the internal intercostal muscles engage, and that's going to help you exhale. So along with the negative pressure that's created and then the pressure gradient that forces the air back out, let's talk about the respiratory rate and how our body controls how fast we're breathing and what stimulates the start of those muscles to contract and then relax. So respiratory rate is going to be based on control centers that are mainly located in the medulla and the pons. Specifically, the dorsal respiratory center, this is located in the medulla, and it's going to be the respiratory pacemaker that stimulates our inspiration. The ventral respiratory center that's also located in the medulla, this is going to stimulate our expiration. So if anybody asks you the pacemaker of respiration, that's going to be your dorsal respiratory center. Now, there are some things that control this dorsal respiratory center, and these are going to be in the pons. So in the pons, one area I want to talk about is your apneustic center, and this stimulates the dorsal respiratory center, whereas your pneumotaxic center, which is also in the pons, will inhibit it. So if you think about this, we have our dorsal respiratory center, which is our main pacemaker. And I, when I was studying this, thought about the SA node in the heart and how it can either be stimulated by your SNS system or inhibited by your PNS system. Same thing is true here with the dorsal respiratory center. That's the main pacemaker, but it can be stimulated by this apneustic center, or it can be inhibited by the pneumotaxic center. So what is actually causing these centers to stimulate the body to breathe. So these respiratory centers are going to be controlled by receptors throughout the body. And there's really two that I want to focus on here, even though there are more, but they're going to be the central chemoreceptors and then the peripheral chemoreceptors. So the central chemoreceptors are going to be located in the ventral part of the medulla. So they're very close to this dorsal respiratory center. Now, what you have to keep in mind here is that this is going to be inside the blood brain barrier. So we have to stimulate it by using things that can cross the blood brain barrier. So the one thing that's going to be causing the central chemoreceptors to be stimulated are going to be pH level changes in our cerebral spinal fluid. So AKA the more hydrogen ions that we have in here is going to stimulate them to then cause the dorsal respiratory center to stimulate a inspiration of a breath. However, the hydrogen ions can't pass the blood brain barrier but our carbon dioxide can. So what's going to happen here is carbon dioxide is going to cross the blood-brain barrier, and then it's going to be converted to carbonic acid, which combines water to the carbon dioxide to make this carbonic acid. And then that acid will actually split into form bicarb and hydrogen ions. Those hydrogen ions then are now located inside the blood-brain barrier, so they can travel up through to these central chemoreceptors that then stimulate the dorsal respiratory center. So hopefully you're following me there. The dorsal respiratory center is going to be stimulating a initiation of a breath by the central chemoreceptors being stimulated from the CO2 being turned into hydrogen once it crosses the blood-brain barrier. So in theory, we can basically say the central chemoreceptors are indirectly stimulated by high levels of CO2. And that makes sense. The higher the CO2 that you have, your body's going to want to blow that off. And so you're going to be stimulated to breathe. This is just the complex way of our body's actually doing that. And then lastly, I want to talk about the peripheral chemoreceptors. These are more located in the carotid bodies and then the transverse aortic arch. And so, as I said, while the chemoreceptors that are centrally located respond indirectly to that carbon dioxide, these peripheral chemoreceptors are going to respond to low levels of PaO2. 
And they're going to do this by sending a signal through the glossopharyngeal nerve to the medulla. The next thing that we want to talk about is ventilation. And this is something that can very easily get twisted around in your mind, or at least again in my mind. Let's go over it and talk about what exactly ventilation is. So ventilation, very simply, is the moving of air in and out of the lungs, exchanging gases between the body and atmosphere. So that's like your textbook definition of it. The short and sweet way that you can remember this is ventilation is gas exchange. Okay, so that's going to be where you have oxygen coming in or gas coming in and gas leaving. You're exchanging gas between the tissues. So this is different from oxygenation. Oxygenation is just providing oxygen to the tissues. I had one anesthesiologist ask me, what is more important, ventilation or oxygenation? And I was thinking um, ventilation is going to be more important because you're going to need to ventilate in order to oxygenate. And his response was, no, oxygenation is more important because you can live for a relatively long time with your without ventilating and your CO2 will continue to build up and build up and you'll become more somnolent and eventually that will lead to death. But if you're not oxygenating, if you don't have oxygen going to the tissues, then your length of survival is much, much less than waiting for CO2 to build up and lead to death. And so his point was making the difference between ventilation, exchanging the gases and just oxygenation is oxygenation is going to be more important as far as sustaining life, which makes total sense in your head. But again, these things can kind of get very convoluted and tricky as you're trying to make really small differences between what they look like. So if you keep the big definitions in mind, I think this makes a lot more sense. So ventilation, think gas exchange, gas exchange with ventilation. Right. And I've had doctors also tell me the opposite, that they think ventilation is more important. So that's the other piece of advice for anesthesia school is you'll have a thousand and one different opinions on the same thing. And that's the beauty of it. In my mind is it's just as much of an art as it is science. Um, But again, we're talking about more the science here today. And so um, it, it is obviously important to do both. Our job is to do both for the patient, to both ventilate and then oxygenate the patient. And so going into ventilation here, so in order to ventilate, we have to have adequate amounts of air that are going to be moving from the atmosphere into the lungs and then back out. I can't tell you how many times when I started clinical that, you know, you put the patient to sleep and you're sitting there while you're waiting for your muscle relaxant to kick in, whether it be a minute, two minutes, depending on what drug you're using, and you're sitting there squeezing the bag and the anesthesiologist looks at you like you have no idea what you're doing because he says, are you ventilating the patient? And it really took me a while to get in the hang of this, of looking, first of all, to see my chest rise, to see if I'm getting volume in. But then I would look at my end title and see, am I getting that gas coming back out? Am I getting that CO2 to come back out of what I'm putting into the lungs to show some type of numerical value that I actually am ventilating the patient? And so we really need adequate amounts of volume going into the lungs and back out when we're breathing for these patients in order to ventilate for them appropriately. So speaking of that, speaking of the volume, when you think of tidal volume, tidal volume is the volume of air that we put into the lungs with each breath. However, important distinction to note here, it is not the volume that the patient is able to exchange gases with. 
only the air that is moved into and out of parts of the lung are going to be capable of exchange with the blood. And this is what, in my mind, the quality part of the ventilation. Only this amount of air or whatever gas we're using that can come into contact with tissues that can exchange it are the ones that we're really dealing with here. So for example, the trachea has no ability to exchange gas between the blood and the air in the trachea. But the alveolar cells, that air that gets there is able to exchange gases with the blood. So when you take a breath, the air first has to go past what we call the conduction zone. And this meaning is that the conduction is a pathway or conduit that this air has to get through to then get to a part that we can have ventilation that crosses over with gases to the blood. So this conduction zone is everything in the airway, starting from your mouth and your nose up until the terminal bronchioles. And this is known as our anatomic dead space. The ability of the cells lining the airway to participate in exchange with the blood. So this will be, you know, what we typically think of as Tanner said earlier, your alveolar sacs. This technically starts back at the respiratory bronchioles and then includes your alveolar ducts and your alveolar sacs. So all those areas have cell linings that are capable of having gas exchange between what's going to be going through their lumens and then also the blood. Right. And so there's a couple different things that you need to pay attention to. Like Cole just said, only the amount of air that's actually exchanging they're starting in the respiratory bronchioles and then down to the alveolar ducts and sacs. That's what's actually going to be counted for what you're going to be exchanging back and forth. The minute ventilation is different. Minute ventilation is going to be the tidal volume times your respiratory rate. And since ventilation, again, this is gas exchange, is only concerned with the volume in the respiratory zone. Again, that starts at the respiratory bronchioles. You can calculate your alveolar ventilation because you can take the volume of air that is in the tidal volume minus the dead space, okay, and multiply that times the respiratory rate. So we said minute ventilation is just your tidal volume times your respiratory rate. If you want to know exactly what your alveolar ventilation is, you take that same tidal volume and you subtract the dead space. So that's going to be only leaving you with the gas that is exchanging and you multiply that by the respiratory rate. Well, obviously it's difficult to specifically measure the anatomical dead space on each patient. So we just assume it's about two mils per kilo for the anatomic dead space. So to do an example of this, if a patient was breathing 12 times a minute and their tidal volume is 500, right there, you could figure out your minute ventilation. So that's just going to be your 500 times 12. So if you wanted to figure out their alveolar ventilation, you'd need to know their weight. So let's assume for easy math, they're 50 kilos. And we know that it's two mils per kilo for anatomic dead space. So that means it's a total of 100 mils of anatomical dead space. If their tidal volume is 500, then you subtract that 100 mils of dead space, which would leave you with 400 mils that is actually exchanging for each breath. From there, it's pretty simple. You just multiply that 400 times your rate of 12, and that gets you 4.8 liters per minute that is actually exchanging. So that's your alveolar ventilation compared to your minute ventilation. Are you looking to join an organization where you can work at your full scope of practice? Join Sound Physicians Anesthesia Team and benefit from CRNA leadership with over 20 years of experience. Sound CRNAs enjoy career development, a clear leadership pathway, robust well-being resources, and the ability to perform at the top of their license. 
Sound is dedicated to providing our CRNAs with the tools needed to thrive in their practice. With multiple nationwide opportunities, we are confident you will find the right program for you. Learn more at careers.soundphysicians.com. So next, let's move into lung volumes. And it really helps here if you look at a picture illustrating lung volumes as we explain this. But I want you to remember this tip. When I was an ICU nurse, I had a pulmonary fellow tell me this. And they said, if we're referring to a capacity, then that means we're combining at least two volumes together. If we're talking about a specific lung volume, then you know it's just simply that, a volume. And that really helped when I was trying to memorize and go through all these capacities and volumes and what goes where for the lung volumes in this graph or this picture illustrating it. And that really did help for me. So look at a picture as we go through this. And let's start with just going to the volumes, first of all. So from the bottom here, you have what's called the residual volume. And this is the amount that can never be exhaled. It'll always be left in the lung, no matter how hard you try to breathe it out. And typically in a normal adult patient, this is going to be just over one liter. Above that, then you're going to have your expiratory reserve volume. And this is the amount that you're going to have left in your lungs after you have a typical breath and you typically exhale. And then you could try to forcefully blow off any more air in your lungs. So if you take a breath, you breathe out, and then at the end of your expiration, you decide, you know what, I'm going to squeeze as much air out as I can, and you blow out a little bit more, that's your expiratory reserve volume. That's, again, about another one liter. Now, after you have forcefully blown all that out, you might think you've literally blown out every ounce of air inside of your lungs, but you still have that residual volume that is left in there. And the whole goal of that is to keep those alveoli open because we do not want them to close. And so really that's, in my mind, your body's own little peep that it provides to keep that alveoli open. So next, above your extra reserve volume, you're going to have your tidal volume. So this is the volume of air with each normal breath that you're breathing in and out. And this is probably typically around about 500 milliliters, so about half a liter. Above that, you have your inspiratory reserve volume, and this is the volume that you can inhale after you've inhaled a normal breath. So I take in a breath, and then I decide I want to take as big a breath as I can, and from that point on until I can't breathe in anymore is my inspiratory reserve volume. So it's the volume above my tidal volume, and this is about another three liters. So do all the math here. And we're really working our way up to about six liters, five and a half to six liters for a typical adult for these volumes. The last one I want to add in here before we talk about capacities is your closing volume. So closing volume is the volume above your residual volume where your small airways start to close when you're exhaling. And we're going to talk about this a little more. Basically, what I'm getting at here is if you take in a breath and then you start to breathe out and you exhale at some point, you're going to have the pressure squeezing down on your lungs start to occlude those small airways and trap the air that's still behind them in the alveolar sacs that have not gotten out yet and escaped. So in essence, this is going to trap air in those smaller sections of your lungs once those small airways close. And so the volume is the volume in addition to the residual volume. So let's say that your residual volume is 1100 milliliters and my closing volume is at a volume of 1300 milliliters well my closing volume would be another 200 milliliters because i'm 200 above my residual volume so now that you understand that let's talk about capacities the first capacity and remember what i said here capacities combine at least two volumes 
So our functional residual capacity is going to be your residual volume plus your excretory reserve volume. This is usually around 30 to 40 milliliters per kilogram. Your inspiratory capacity is going to be your inspiratory reserve volume plus your tidal volume. So it's that moment you decide to start taking your inhalation and then take your normal breath and then everything else above that that you're forcing to inhale, that's all your inspiratory capacity. Your vital capacity is everything above the residual volume. Because remember, you can't breathe out your residual volume, but you can forcefully exhale all the volume down until you reach that residual volume. So theoretically, that's as much as you can get out of your lungs. And then starting there, all the way up to the top part of your inspiratory reserve volume will be your vital capacity. So it includes your excretory reserve volume, your tidal volume, and your inspiratory reserve volume. Your total lung capacity is very similar to the vital capacity, except it includes that residual volume. So it includes every single thing in your lungs. Your closing capacity, this is the last one I want to talk about, and this is going to be the residual volume plus that closing volume. So in the example I gave earlier, this would just be the total 1,300 milliliters. It would be that 1,100 from your residual volume plus that extra 200 from the closing volume. And this is going to be increased in patients that have extra pressure pushing on the lungs, either from pregnancy patients that have the uterus pushing up into the lungs. If you have an obese patient that has extra weight pushing down to the lungs, it also increases with age as well. It's a typical trend that we see. And it's again, important because once those small airways begin to close, whatever air is still left in the alveoli are going to be stuck there and it's going to be unable to be exhaled. So understanding these volumes and these capacities, it's really important to know here that we measure a lot of these based on spirometry, but the one thing that it really can't measure, the spirometry can't measure is the residual volume and simply because you can't exhale that volume. So anything that includes the residual volume, we technically can't measure with spirometry. So a perfect example would be your FRC, your functional residual capacity. And this is because that includes your residual volume. And if we can't measure that residual volume, then you can't measure your FRC. All right. Are you having fun yet? Hopefully you are still with us. We're about halfway through this content. And so this isn't going to slow down anytime soon. So stick with us. And the next thing we want to talk about is dead space versus shunt. This is something again that easily in my mind gets switched around and I'm going to give you the simplest definition of it first and then we'll unpack it a little bit more. So dead space is areas that are ventilated but are not perfused, okay? Shunting are areas that are perfused but not ventilated. So just think of them, if you had to just memorize that, you can basically work from the tip of the pyramid all the way down to a bunch of different differentials and work that out in a lot of different situations. But I feel like if you get that very, very simplified in your mind, then you can understand the rest of this. Dead space, you're having ventilation, you're not perfusing. Shunting, you have perfusion, but you do not have ventilation. So why is this important? So in addition to the conduction zone, so that makes up your anatomic dead space, you also have alveolar dead space, which is where you have ventilation in areas of the respiratory zone that typically will have gas exchange with the blood, but in this case are unable to have gas exchange. You can have reduced pulmonary blood flow. You could have a positioning issue where you have decreased perfusion to that area. Um, you can also think about our equipment as adding to your dead space. So 
if you have a face mask on the patient, this will increase your conduction zone, which then increases your dead space. Think about this. Don't assume that just when you intubate, you'll increase the dead space due to the circuit because the conduction zone only starts at the Y piece. And this is if you have a properly functioning circuit. So from the circuit to the machine up into the Y piece is not going to be involved in your conduction zone. In fact, since your ET tube or even your LMA are smaller areas or smaller tubes than the mouth or nose, these will actually decrease the amount of dead space that you have. If you use bronchodilators, this is going to increase the conduction zone. This is going to dilate those bronchioles. So you'll have an increased dead space simply because you have more area, more volume there in the bronchioles. So to sum up, dead space is going to be increased by anything that will increase your conduction zone. Again, we talked about using any kind of equipment that would increase it, such as a face mask or something, or if you have anything that decreases your pulmonary blood flow. So if you had a PE, some type of blockage, again, positioning that decreases your blood flow, these are all things that will cause dead space. And again, for different reasons, again, dead space is going to be your ventilation without perfusion. And then we'll go into shunt here. Shunt is where you have your perfusion, not ventilation. Before we move on to shunting, I really want to talk about why is dead space important anyway? What's the point of talking about if dead space is increased or decreased, et cetera? So the more dead space you have, the higher the gradient is between the pressure of CO2 in the blood, so your PaCO2, and the pressure of CO2 in the lungs, so your PaCO2, which we read as coming out as your end title. If you have increases in this gradient between the blood and the alveolar concentrations of CO2, the problem is either going to be due to an issue in the cell lining between the alveoli and the pulmonary capillaries, meaning that gas is not able to exchange past that tissue. There's something wrong with the diffusion with that tissue and the carbon dioxide is not able to leave the blood. And so we have a bigger gradient because more is in the blood and less is in the end title that we're reading. Or the most likely cause is going to be a VQ mismatch, either because of an increased dead space or shunting. So what is VQ, first of all, here? VQ describes the state of lung balance between ventilation and pulmonary blood flow and then perfusion. So ventilation is our V and perfusion is our Q. We want this ratio close to around one, slightly less than one. When there is a higher VQ ratio, this means that you have more ventilation compared to your perfusion. AKA, if we have ventilation but not perfusion, do you think we have a shunt or dead space? We have dead space because remember dead space is when you're ventilating, but you don't have perfusion. So the more dead space there is, the higher the VQ ratio and it approaches an infinity. The opposite here is true. When VQ is low, the VQ ratio is low. This means that there is more perfusion than ventilation, which is shunting. The more shunting there is, the VQ ratio will approach zero. And this is because your V on the top would be zero and zero divided by any number is zero. Hopefully that makes sense. And it kind of talks about how you want our VQ matching to look like. And when the ventilation is more, you're on the side of dead space. And when the perfusion is more, you're on the side of shunting. So shunting for me, at least is a lot easier than all the dead space. And that's because it's simply blood is coming past through the pulmonary circuit 
from the right side of the heart into the left side of the heart. And it is not able to exchange with any type of ventilated gas coming into the lungs. And this is because mainly that I think of atelectasis. So if you have atelectasis, you're going to have that alveolar section of the lung closed and you're not going to be able to have gas exchange in that area. So the ventilation is not going to be able to get into that portion of the lung, but that doesn't have any effect then on the blood flow going past. And so that is going to cause a shunt. That blood is going to be going past and not being able to exchange. And if you want more information about how our bodies try to combat the shunting, we did talk about that in a lot further detail with the hypoxic pulmonary vasoconstriction that you're going to have when you have this shunting occur in our pulmonary anesthesia topic, where we talk about one lung ventilation and how we do those type of procedures. So I do encourage you to go listen to that talk if you want to know about how our bodies try to compensate for that shunting. But in essence, what we do is we squeeze and constrict those vessels there and push more blood to the areas of the lung that have that actual ventilation so that you can have a better VQ matching. Next thing we want to talk about are lung zones. You've definitely heard of lung zones before, and this just helps us compartmentalize the different sections of the lungs based on their VQ ratio. So typically you have zone one, two, and three, and there's a couple rules that we want you to think about as you try to keep straight in your mind, the different lung zones. So the first rule is when you are listing the pressures from greatest to least. So you'll see lung zone one, and then you'll see the different pressures. You'll see alveolar pressure, arterial pressure, and venous pressure. So rule number one, when you're listing the pressures from greatest to least, your alveolar pressure is always going to be the same zone of the lung zone that we're talking about. So in zone one, the alveolar pressure is going to be in this first spot. In zone two, the alveolar pressure is going to be in the second spot. And then in zone three, alveolar pressure is going to be in the third spot. This is in relation to your arterial and venous pressures. The second rule is that your arterial pressure is always going to be higher than the venous pressure. So in my mind, I always remember your alveolar is the same position as whatever zone you're in. And then AV, know that your arterial goes before your venous. So in the first zone, you'll have your alveolar pressure, your arterial pressure, and then your venous pressure. Zone two, you're going to have your arterial pressure because your alveolar is in the second spot and arterial is always going to be ahead of venous. And then zone three is going to be arterial, venous, and then alveolar in the third spot. There's technically a zone four. So this is when the pressures are in the exact same order as zone three. So you have your arterial, venous, and then alveolar, but you also will include interstitial pressure in the second position. So after your artery, it'll be your interstitial pressure. And that's simply because of the interstitial pressure being increased from something like pulmonary edema or something like that. So there's technically zone four, but usually you just hear about zone one, two, and three in a healthy patient. Zone one is associated with more dead space. So this is where you have more ventilation than perfusion. Zone two is the good zone that has the best VQ matching. Zone three is considered a shunted lung zone. So there's better perfusion, but not ventilation. Since the alveolar pressure is going to be less than the venous and arterial pressures in the zone, theoretically the vessels should always stay open. So this is why zone three has the best placement for your pulmonary artery catheter. So something that you'll be asked many, many times, where do you want your PA catheter? Zone three is where you want that. And that's simply because that alveolar pressure is going to be less than the venous and arterial. 
typically we think of zone one being at the apex of the lungs and zone three at the base in a supine person. But actually zone one is on the outside of the lungs. Zone three is as it works towards the center. And so this is something that I've seen different in different literature. I think in the older textbooks, you typically just see one, two, and three apex down to the base. But keep in mind where the bronchioles actually are entering into the lungs there and you're starting to get those branches off into the different alveolar sacs. This is actually the better way to think about lung zones is that three, again, is going to be on the very center. Lung zone two is going to be on the intermediate part. And then lung zone one is going to be on the outside of the lungs. All right, you guys are doing great. We're through what I think is the roughest part. Now we just have to talk about once we get our oxygen into the bloodstream, how are we going to get it to the tissues and how are we going to bring carbon dioxide back to the lungs? So typically, we think of hemoglobin holding on to the oxygen. This is true, but there is a balance between the hemoglobin affinity for oxygen as well as carbon dioxide and other gases such as carbon monoxide, etc., so we use the oxyhemoglobin dissociation curve to illustrate the hemoglobin affinity for oxygen. And you probably have seen this, whether you're studying for the CCRN, if you've already studied this in anesthesia school, it's, it's come up a lot. But this oxyhemoglobin dissociation curve has on the x-axis the partial pressure of oxygen, and then on the y-axis the hemoglobin saturation percentage. So the P50, this is the middle point, and this represents the partial pressure of oxygen at which 50% of the hemoglobin is saturated with O2. So basically, let's just say you had zero oxygen in your body, and you take a breath, and you breathe in oxygen, and it transfers over to the bloodstream, you do it again, you do it again, and you finally get to that point now where half of your hemoglobin has oxygen on it. What is the pressure of oxygen in the body that gives you that 50% saturation? Normally, that's going to be about 26.5 millimeters of mercury. So we want to know what shifts that to the left on the graph, meaning that you're going to have a less O2 pressure at which 50% hold oxygen, aka I may only need to give half of the oxygen inside this patient's body for 50% of the hemoglobin to snatch it up. So in that case, the hemoglobin really loves oxygen, so I need less oxygen present to saturate 50% of it. Or that curve shifts to the right, which is where the hemoglobin are going to have less affinity for oxygen. So I need more oxygen hanging out around that hemoglobin before 50% of it pick it up. So in my mind, I like to think left shift means love. So left is where the hemoglobin loves the oxygen and grabs onto it. And right is where it doesn't care, just gets rid of it. If you think about it, the hemoglobin going throughout the body will shift this curve left and right. It's not like one hemoglobin perfectly has that same affinity for oxygen its entire lifespan. It just doesn't work like that. It's very dynamic. So when it approaches the lungs, the hemoglobin is going to have a high affinity for oxygen. And so it'll be shifted to the left. That curve will be to the left and it'll snatch up that oxygen and pull that oxygen across the gradient from the lungs into the bloodstream and bind to that hemoglobin. Once it gets to your metabolically active tissues, though, the opposite is true. The CO2 and the hydrogen that is going to be made from those tissues is going to have a conformational change in this hemoglobin and cause the hemoglobin to have a decreased affinity for the oxygen 
and this shifts the curve to the right side, which allows that hemoglobin to release that oxygen so it can go to that metabolically active tissue. And then in turn, it picks up that carbon dioxide and the hemoglobin filled with the carbon dioxide comes back to the lungs. The reverse is true. The oxygen present there causes that hemoglobin shift and conformational change and gets rid of that carbon dioxide and pulls the oxygen back. So let's talk really quick here about what shifts this curve to the left, what shifts it to the right. So things that shift it to the left are going to be a decreased carbon dioxide level. This is why at the lungs here, all that carbon dioxide is leaving. And so we're going to have a left shift and that hemoglobin wants to pick up oxygen. Same with that when you have a decreased hydrogen, so alkalosis, when you have hypothermia or decreased 2,3-DPG. And this is a byproduct of red blood cell glycolysis. So in my mind, I just think whatever is decreased out of any of those will cause a left shift. Additionally, if you have fetal hemoglobin, so this is hemoglobin F, this will cause a left shift. That's because the baby's hemoglobin they need to attract oxygen from the mom's hemoglobin when it crosses the placenta. And so that hemoglobin has a higher affinity for oxygen so that it pulls that oxygen across the placenta into the baby's bloodstream. And then a right shift in the curve, this is going to be caused by the opposite. So increased CO2, increased hydrogen, so acidosis, hyperthermia, and increased 2,3-DPG. All those that are decreased will do a left shift. All those that are increased will do a right shift. And lastly, with this, when the hemoglobin is saturated with oxygen and it gets to the metabolically active tissues and that high CO2 and hydrogen ions that are present there, that's going to be that rightward shift, as we talked about, and it's going to cause that conformational change and allow that hemoglobin to release oxygen. And this is known as the Bohr effect. So the Bohr effect deals with how the hemoglobin changes its shape in the presence of CO2 so that it gets rid of oxygen. So what, like, why do we care about any of this or, or why is this important? And at this point in the podcast, maybe you're saying, we don't care about this anymore, but stick with us. We're almost there. The, the reason this is important is because once the oxygen has left the hemoglobin and is actually into the metabolic tissues, this is where you have your aerobic metabolism. So this is where glucose is turned into ATP. And in order for that to happen, you need oxygen. You need oxygen for that entire process to work. And so this is why this is obviously so important. The byproduct of that is that you're going to have CO2, which will leave the cell and go back into the bloodstream. If you don't have enough oxygen, this is where the cells will be forced to perform anaerobic metabolism. This is successful, but is not as successful as your aerobic metabolism. This is why our bodies prefer to do the aerobic metabolism compared to the anaerobic because anaerobic will produce less ATP and you'll have lactic acid produced as well. Since our bodies will do aerobic metabolism most of the time, it's important for us to figure out a way to get that CO2 to clear from the body. So as the CO2 is leaving the cells, this is where it causes that conformational change in the hemoglobin, which will cause the incoming hemoglobin that has the oxygen attached to it to lose the oxygen that will then go into the metabolically active tissue, and then we'll be able to pick up the carbon dioxide. When the carbon dioxide gets to the hemoglobin, it will combine with water. So this will form the carbonic acid, which will break down into hydrogen and a carb. Bicarb is going to leave the red blood cell into the plasma, and, but because the bicarb has a negative charge, a negative chlorine ion will enter the red blood cell 
And this is known as the hamburger shift. So this is the change basically from the bicarb for the chlorine ion. As a result, most of that CO2 is going to be carried in the form of bicarb back to the lungs. And at that point, that's when it's converted back to CO2. And then at the lungs, there is more oxygen, which will cause the hemoglobin to convert the bicarb back into CO2 and release it. And then this is known as the Haldane effect. So the Haldane effect is going to be happening there in the lungs. And this is the final change back to the CO2, which will then allow us to exchange it there at the lungs and then exhale and get that CO2 out of the body. You guys made it through our talk. Congratulations. <laughs> yeah, that was rough. If it was rough for me to talk about it, I'm sure it was rough for you to listen about it. So yeah, hopefully no, no was... accidents were caused by this episode. <laughs> Nobody fell asleep at the wheel. Seriously, though, this is an episode we felt like it was it needed to be done and put in one place so that you can have this to listen to these. I feel like the more that you repeat these concepts in your mind, the more clear they will be. I mean, it wasn't very long ago that I was getting still mixed up with the ventilation perfusion and oxygenation. And uh, I feel like it's just concepts that if you know on the surface, and then when people start grilling you into the actual specifics of it, you'll start going round and round your head and get confused. So the more you hear it, the more you listen about it, the more you read about it, the more concrete these become in your mind. And then they'll just be like second nature to you. You'll, you'll know these like the back of your hand. So hopefully this is helpful in that step process for you. And this will be a good thing to listen to and uh, just be a good review, hopefully of all of these respiratory concepts. <laughs>